This is No Love in War, a story of Christian nationalism. Written by Valerie H. Hobbs. Read by the author. With original music by Jonathan and Caroline Hodges. Originally published in open access print form by Mayfly Books. Womb. There are three things that will not be satisfied, four that will not say enough. The barren womb. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 15 to 16. Chapter 10. It has been a conscious policy of government to liberate the wife from the leadership of the husband and thus break up the family as a unit of government. First, Howard Phillips said, in the 1800s, legislation was passed that gave women property rights. Second, we saw how women were liberated from the leadership of their husbands politically. You know, it used to be that in recognition of the family as a basic unit of society, we had one family, one vote. And we have seen the trend instead toward one person, one vote. The ultimate extension of this philosophy has been the sexual liberation of the woman from her husband, said Phillips. And hence, he said, we got adultery, promiscuity, and so forth. Judy Mann, listening in on speech by pro-family orator, The Washington Post, October 31, 1980. Little Billy now wants to get his ears pierced, and little Sally now dresses like a prostitute. Parents who allow their teenage daughters to wear short skirts and bikinis are another problem. Brian Abshire, Dealing with Rebellious Christian Teenagers, The Council of Chalcedon, 2002, Issue 2. Today we will be talking about the ladder of promiscuity. Our small school sat in rows of padded chairs in the immense church sanctuary, youngest in front. One of our church school's Bible teachers, also an elder, of course, stood at the front, as always at his most passionate when talking about personal piety. Each act of obedience to the law was a seed planted in the grassroots movement by which we holy white people would raise heaven from our earthly efforts. When preaching, when teaching, this man's whole zealous body boiled and bubbled over, eventually producing pale globules of spit at the corners of his mouth, which occasionally dropped away. Today we were gathered together, in part because our church school magazine had published an article on teenage promiscuity. If parents fail in their responsibility to deal with wantonness among children, 
the church must step in. And to our Bible teachers' disgust and delight, indistinguishable as they were, there had been reports of another debaucherous high school party. I was fourteen. Parties like these often took place at the behest of church leaders' kids, though adults never discussed the relevance of this in front of mere children. Here was where the repressed exercised liberation, and the most reckless kids from the most untouchable families led the way. I saw them exchange knowing glances at school, recite jokes only they understood, hinting at experiences only they shared, mocking the blank faces of the absent and uninvolved. The youngest of our pastor's sons, Matthew, reported snippets of the older crowd's revelry to me, all disapprovingly, though he too had joined in, by rights bestowed on him by birth. Our phone calls almost always operated as his confession booth, and I his priest of sorts. For hours sometimes he heaved upon me all his emotional baggage, the click of the receiver returning to its cradle, signaling his absolution and my further idealization. The first rung of the ladder of promiscuity is dressing to attract attention. Girls, you might do this by wearing tight or low-cut blouses. I sat lower in my seat, not daring to catch anyone's eye my cheeks growing hot. I didn't own any tight or low-cut clothing, yet I was suddenly hyper-aware of the pressure of my buttocks against the seat, the heft of the half-moons on my chest, presently concealed by my bulky, crested school sweatshirt. It was a hot, humid day, and tendrils of my thin, reddish-blonde hair curled around my face. This somehow seemed now irreverent, too. I pushed my legs together tightly and positioned my feet under the chair, crossing my arms over my stomach, an instinctive tool in every shrinking woman's repertoire. I'd recall this moment years later, when a roommate at university showed me a Sabbath trick her mother taught her, of positioning a Bible strategically against her body, its blessed angularity concealing sacrilegious softness a full chest or rounded stomach. Men would see only the word and none of our flesh. My mother, too, disapproved of the existence of both girls' and women's bodies. We pretended they didn't exist, speaking about them rarely and only in coded whispers. This was how. We imagined ourselves as ephemeral spirits in disguise, occupying tented clothing, Ghosts under a sheet, collapsing at the touch. We lived not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the spirit. If indeed God lived in us. And did he? To wear revealing clothing was to tell a lie. To fail to put to death the misdeeds of the body. To communicate the existence of things that shouldn't exist. Fitted jeans might reveal the curve of a thigh. The visible strap of a bra might suggest a possible reality of breasts, might blaspheme them into being. Let there be boobs, let there be legs. And there were boobs and legs, and men saw that they were very bad. 
Perhaps men's bodies would resurrect at the final day of judgment. But girls? Women's? Such straw, such stuffing would surely be burned away, had come from the discarded dust of men's more original bodies, and to the dust they would return. Who could blame men for their response to any unsettling of this sacred order our feminine forms committed? They were unwitting recipients of any such deceitful, immodest lessons, innocent of whatever our flesh enticed their hands to do. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me her body, and I ate. Adults talked perpetually in front of us about girls whose bodies were too visible, too robust, too substantial, too sickly, too weak. The so-and-so girl's butts are too big. If only so-and-so disciplined her diet, she might find a husband. If she were thinner, she'd be happier. So-and-so puts on too much eyeliner for church. I saw so-and-so wearing bodysuits in worship. Can you even imagine? Every gathering was an opportunity to scan and judge, to accumulate information, to recalibrate one's position by trampling another. Nothing was off-limits. Yet, like all our rules, our version of purity culture was riddled with hypocrisy. The elder's wife, most openly critical of other girls' clothes and makeup, was also the most lenient with her own daughter's wardrobe choices. The elder who initiated a bulk purchase of the book Christian Courtship versus the Dating Game, he was also the most permissive about makeup. Our pastor was adamant that piercings of any kind were ungodly. Yet his children smoked and drank underage and listened to whatever music they fancied. Hot and cold, here and there, up and down, everyone had opinions and arguments. Everyone made it their daily profession to outdo themselves in drawing and redrawing definitive lines, in dishonoring one another and honoring themselves. Yet even according to the almighty adults, Adorning ourselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, according to our fickle and self-contradictory system, this was only a short-term solution to the problem that is women. A stopgap. The long-term answer was, of course, marriage. Whew! Marriage! Finally! Marriage! We thought it had never happened for her, but at long last, it has. The pastor's wife once listed her children's names in an announcement, complete with a blank line and question mark after the daughter who wasn't yet married. To be completed, to be determined, work in progress. In the beginning, men created the universe. Women were fulsome and void, and obscurity was over the surface of their bodies. The spirit of men hovered over their shape. Then men said, let her be mine. And then, as if by magic, babies appeared. Their lives birthed into our commune triumphantly via the most sacred of information delivery devices, the pulpit. Usually in the form of an elaborate poem written by the father-to-be and read dramatically by our pastor. Breaking news headline. 
Woman finally saved through childbearing. Parents sighed with hope and relief at the thought, and then finally the reality. Audible gasps of rejoicing accompanied these announcements, to mark that brief period of celebration in a woman's limited life, lasting between the moment of conception and a year, maybe two, after her baby was born. Until the risk of wickedness sets in again. Time for another pregnancy. A man I know moved from England to Arizona a few years ago and was unprepared for another conservative evangelical church's similar elation, their chorus of cheers, once because a woman and her daughter were simultaneously found to be with child. According to my incredulous friend, the minister had even pumped his fist in excitement as he proclaimed such glad tidings. I shrugged when my friend reported this to me. I wouldn't have been surprised if the whole congregation had jumped to their feet and run seven laps around the room, shouting and blasting their trumpets to mark the collapse of the wall that was another woman's hymen. So everyone charged straight in, and they took her uterus. As a child, listening to these elaborate announcements, I recall watching certain women quietly slip out of the room weeping, the memory of their reproductive loss unnoticed and unmourned, trampled under the eager boasts of the holy mob, zealous to win the world through the wombs of women. And what of the women who never satisfied our community's demands over our reproductive systems? Years after I left my church school, I visited my friend Leah in her parents' home. Her sisters dropped in. No time to waste. Haven't you heard? Our eldest sister's husband had a vasectomy. What use is she now? Their sharp words like knives eagerly cutting even the bonds of blood, reinforcing our savage sisterhood. The concept of asexuality was, of course, absolutely foreign to us. Any single woman was seen as exceptionally unnatural, stuck as she was in purgatory with purposeless breasts, vagina, and womb. Men and women frequently deliberated with one another on that undesirable state of being useless, unleashed, or worse, unwanted. Heaven help the undesired, because there's nothing more we can do for her. These messages were always delivered loudly, always loudly, and often in the presence of the offending girl woman. In these moments we were she, her, and almost never you. In this way required to listen, included by force, yet simultaneously excluded, both the subject of the conversation and its object. She looks so pretty today. When will someone snatch her up? What she really needs is a husband. Her education is important up to a point, so her husband doesn't get bored with her. Promiscuity was not just being sexually uninhibited. It was to be unrestrained, unrestricted, unbridled, unconventional, uncontrolled. Daring to exist, to distract, and even worse, to prosper without the rightful oversight and exploitation of men. Loose, 
wild. Many of us internalized this compulsion to be securely positioned under close supervision, to be chewed up and swallowed, digested by manly desire. I can't wait to submit to my husband, Leah whispered to me excitedly one Sunday, expecting shortly to be engaged. At a church picnic, her church elder father snuck up behind her mother as she played horseshoes and pinched her ass grinning as he displayed before all our eyes what he was in a position to take, what he and his hands alone could grab and whenever. There were many among us who could imagine freedom and fulfillment only as marriage, the only mechanism to leave the family home, away from the suffocating control of patriarchal parents, trading one despot for another. Maybe this one would be better. This theme of ownership followed me relentlessly to university and beyond. Why isn't anyone dating you? A college study partner puzzled. He surprised by the fact of my unclaimed intelligence. Holding hands, kissing on the cheek, then the lips, fondling each other's genitals over top of clothing. Here was my high school Bible teacher again each rung in his ladder of promiscuity growing more and more explicit, blending into a single horrifying climax. We had never heard such talk from our teachers before. It was impossible to mask so much collective mortification, yet every child was trying. Bodies turned to stone in every seat. Each squirm was an admission of immorality. We'd surely turn to salt if our eyes moved even half an inch. My mother, as a teacher also in attendance, could stand this mockery of her carefully honed modesty no more. We're leaving, she announced to the room. This is inappropriate. Her catch-all word for whatever was false, whatever was ignoble, whatever was wrong, impure, unlovely, abominable, Whatever was worthy of condemnation, we were never to think on such things. She washed our mouths out with soap when we did. She tapped me on the shoulder, and I joined my siblings in the corridor. Somehow our exit was even worse than staying for whatever licentious level was next, camouflaged in the herd as I had managed to remain until then. We drove home in silence the only known cure for the falsehoods we'd heard. Such mixed messages were profoundly confusing. Language about sex, about bodies, all this was implicitly, and sometimes explicitly, labeled as forbidden, coarse, unwholesome. Sexual immorality and all impurity must not even be named among us girls. Yet those with self-appointed authority established all our rules, made rigid decisions, then broke them, changed them at whim, demonstrating the location of the law as internal to themselves. These men, in their bodies, their words, their actions, they were the commandments, the statutes, and the laws, they the word fashioned into man-flesh. The summer before I turned fifteen, I began attending our church youth group, led by a young man under the singular ministerial tutelage of our pastor. 
Most meetings we played sexually awkward games, one where we girls sat in a circle, instructed to remain absolutely straight-faced, while boys whispered the phrase, Honey, I love you, in our ears. Another where in pairs, we boys and girls maneuvered an orange between our bodies pressed together, from abdomens to mouths, without the use of our hands. Afterwards, we listened to moralistic sermons about the faithfulness and unfaithfulness of various biblical figures. One time, as part of a service initiative, we painted the walls of a room in a church member's house. The pastor's eldest son and his friends dipped their hands in paint, pressed them on the backs of girls' t-shirts, then cajoled them until they rotated their shirts to position these painted hands atop their breasts. I both wanted the attention of others and dreaded it, just as I'd learned to loathe my body, yet instinctively shield it. I longed for love, though I'd rarely felt it. Respect, though I'd never known it. Belonging, though I'd never experienced it. I wanted to be seen and understood, yet could imagine nothing worse. I couldn't fathom such gifts without their cost. The hunter, the possessor, the eater, the devourer, the eraser. In 1990, our church hosted the Christian Vision of Victory Seminar, featuring an array of men, including R.J. Rushdooney, Walter Bowie, Dan Jordan, and Gary DeMar, alongside our pastor. Each spoke on some vision of the future. The future of world missions, of politics, of medical ethics, of Christian activism. But what was my future? Where could I go? Who would I be, apart from the dictates of all these men? I developed a habit of writing letters to my future self, to speak her into existence, to ensure her survival. To Valerie at 18. To Valerie at 21. To Valerie at 25. Dear Valerie, are you there? Dear Valerie... Where are you now? This has been No Love in War, a story of Christian nationalism. If you have appreciated this free audiobook, and would like to make a donation to the author, please visit this podcast's Spotify site.